0: Well, it's great to have everybody here. Welcome to everybody joining us online as well. Next Sunday, I want to give you a heads up. We're going to do a little something different next Sunday, especially with your church attire. I'm declaring it wear your work clothes to church day. Next Sunday. Wear your work clothes to church next Sunday. So that means whatever kind of a uniform setup you have, obviously some of you have Uh, vocations that have more uniform-driven, like our police force and fire and folks in the medical community, feel free to wear your scrubs or your white coats. And then those of you who say, well, I don't really have a uniform, maybe you have a company logo shirt you could wear, something that designates kind of the place where you work, and say, students, what about you as students? Students love for you to wear some of your high school gear, a sweatshirt, a T-shirt, or something that shows what school you're a part of. So it's going to wear your work clothes to church next Sunday. And some of you who are retired, you've hit that category of life, you feel free to wear maybe the company shirt that you most recently retired from, feel free to do that, or just come in your regular old clothes if you want that way as a retired uh, person. So I think the best group of people coming wearing their work clothes are going to be our stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads, because that's, I just say, you set the bar, you come however you want to come, right? Um, so we're in this series called God and Mondays. We're talking about how our worship on Sundays is to affect and integrate with our work on Mondays. And so we want to land the plane next week, land the series with a time that uh, is tied to, I'm calling it a, a time of commissioning that we're going to have, and several individuals from the body are going to help with this part of our service next week. So, at the end of the message next week, it'll make a bit more sense exactly why you're all wearing your work clothes. But I, I think it'll be just a cool way to have some conversation, build some community. I think you're going to meet some people that you didn't realize were working in certain fields of work, and you didn't realize they were in certain companies, and you were more connected, et cetera, et cetera. So, those will be some other good byproducts of next week as well. So, open up your Bibles today and pull out your message note sheets. We're in Daniel chapter 6. If you've got a Bible near you, we'll pull out your phones if you like. And today we're continuing this series about the integration of work and worship. And one of the points of feedback many of you have given me, thanks for the input from the series, many of you have been bringing up the increasingly challenging work setting that you find yourself in. And specifically in the areas of integrating your faith, you find yourself in settings and in environments and under leadership that is more perhaps anti-God and anti-faith and sometimes an anti-center of morality than ever before. And so it's, it's that dynamic uh, that I want us to speak into today because our world and our culture and our environment, although as a country… The founding fathers of our country, you know, the first group of people to land on the shores of North America, they had a vision for our nation that we would be like a city on a hill. Which is why on the dollar bills printed in God We Trust, there was always a a God-centeredness vision about this nation. Uh, But it doesn't take too long to figure out uh, we're, we're drifting away from that center point. And a friend of mine shared this video a few weeks ago from former President Ronald Reagan's son, Ronald Reagan Jr. He's now the spokesperson of this organization. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Ron Reagan, an unabashed atheist, and I'm alarmed by the intrusions of religion into into our secular government. That's why I'm asking you to support the Freedom From Religion Foundation, the nation's largest and most effective association of atheists and agnostics, working to keep state and church separate just like our Founding Fathers intended. Please support the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. So that's a, a bit of a drift from In God We Trust. And then our, our longest standing institution in the educational area, the uni- Harvard University, the first school founded in America, in the founding documents of the school, has written in that Christ is the foundation of all learning and knowledge. It's in the handbook. And then in August of 2021, they appointed their new chaplain. Here's the picture of their new chaplain, who is a very outspoken atheist, and his slogan he ran on was, good without God. So now the chaplain of Harvard University is an atheist and probably, you know, in Ronald Reagan Jr.'s stream of Freedom From Religion Foundation. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, I put this quote in your notes. I commend the book to you. If you've not read it, it's a worthwhile read. Here's how he summarizes kind of the spiritual climate and the air and the headwinds with which you and I are going to work in, in classrooms or in work settings. Here's what it says. As the West secularized, the locus points of authority moved from God, Scripture, and the church to the enlightenment-based triad of science, research, and the university. The new seat of secular authority then redefined, hear this, redefined what can be known, things like mathematics and biology, not things like right, wrong, and God. In doing so, it conveniently moved subjects like religion and ethics into the domain of belief, which most people mean opinion, feeling, or just wishful thinking. So that explains this just helps set the headwinds that you are going to work in, or students, as you navigate in your classrooms, either high school or college or middle school, even. There's this, there's this reality of the air that we're immersed in. The spiritual oxygen is shifting and it's increasingly, I would call kind of an anti-God, anti-faith, anti-religious, anti- Sunday type of atmosphere. And it's into that setting that the Bible calls us to enter into our work as an act of worship, which raises the question, which many of you have asked, how do we do that? Because it just seems like there's more set against us than ever before. And that's why I want us to look today at the life of Daniel. Because Daniel and 10,000 other Israelites in the year 586 B.C., found themselves in a very similar environment. Here's a map of what happened in 586 B.C. The world power Babylon was on the scene and was taken territory, and was taken land, set their eyes on Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, burned the gates, ransacked the temple, and then rounded up 10,000 Israelites and deported them 700 miles east to the center of Babylon, modern day Iraq. Well, Daniel's a young man who's in that 10,000 group of individuals. And when they're deported into that setting, the environment that they're immersed in, as chapter 1 of Daniel says, is in the language and literature of the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, here's his plan. He wants to take 10,000 of them, he takes kind of the cream of the crop, of which Daniel is in that. He's in his late teens, early 20s at this stage. And so there's a lot of fellow Israelites, men and women, drafted into this kind of leadership group, and they're going to be spending three years underneath Nebuchadnezzar's training and teaching in the language and literature of the Babylonians. It's a three-year process where the goal is this, push Yahweh out and press Babylon in. That's the whole goal. Three years, squeeze Yahweh out of them. Because the environment of Babylon is anti-Yahweh, anti-God, anti-faith, self is king, morality is a moving tart. doesn't sound that, outside the bounds of where I sense. If I was to put a a label from Daniel 6 on our cultural realities today, I think we're increasingly trying to integrate our work into an environment that could be labeled as a spiritual Babylon. It's increasingly Babylonian in its dynamics, which is where Daniel found himself, 700 miles from his homeland in a difficult setting with difficult people, difficult leaders, difficult work environment. This is not what he envisioned or signed up for. And yet here he is, thrust into that setting, and we're going to see this morning four phrases from his life that I think give us windows into how we thrive, what I'm saying, thrive and not just survive in the middle of spiritual uh, Babylon. So the first one, chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint. Now, who's Darius? Well, over the course of time, Nebuchadnezzar, he he eventually gets taken over by the Persian kingdom. Darius is leading the Persians. So now, Darius is on the scene. He's no more Yahweh-fearing than Nebuchadnezzar was. So it's just as Babylonian as it's ever been from a spiritual environment. But Darius is there. He's now Daniel's new king, and he appoints 120 satraps. Think of them as state satraps. Governors to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So what happened is at the end of the three-year training process, they took these Israelites, the cream of the crop, and they appointed them into all kinds of leadership roles in the kingdom to serve the king. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So you see they're accountable to take care of the king and the kingdom. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. Remember last week we talked about, you know, resistance indicates indicates progress, and the greater the progress, the greater of the resistance. So, the more Daniel progressed and flourished in his working environment, honoring Yahweh with the way he was going about it, the the stronger and greater the headwinds became, more resistance. Now he's got all kinds of co-workers trying to undermine him and come after him. But look what this says about Daniel. They could find no corruption in him because, underline this, he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Verse 5, finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with what? The law of his God. So you see this? Daniel's thrust 700 miles from his homeland. He's been raised in an environment where he was hanging out in the synagogue, going to Jewish school, being trained and raised in the Old Testament Scriptures, no doubt memorized large sections, especially of the Psalms by the time he was 12 years old. So Daniel's immersed in the ways of Yahweh. He's learning to trust God and honor God and serve God. And then the Babylonians come into town, and they just destroy everything and burn everything and ransack everything and then carry him away. And then here he is sitting, immersed for three years in an environment that is as anti-Yahweh as it comes, it's hard to put into words how dark the spiritual climate is that Daniel found himself in. And that's where he is immersed. It would be like Daniel found himself in middle management at the Freedom From Religion Foundation. In his direct report, his supervisor is Ronald Reagan Jr. That's Daniel. And he's not just there for a few years. He's there for decades in that environment. And the first phrase that I think is so telling that gives us insight to how he went about his work was that phrase I had you underline, trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Look at that. In the midst of difficult environment, difficult leadership, difficult culture, difficult work circumstances, his performance review regularly had things like this written on it, like, exceptional, exceptional distinguished, ready for promotion, trustworthy, diligent. Even in the midst of all the office politics and management drama and talks of cutbacks and uncertainties and egos and power plays, in the midst of all of that, Daniel just remained steady and he remained faithful. He didn't use being in the middle of Babylon as an excuse not to give his best. That's not Daniel. He wasn't using the circumstances as an excuse to cut corners. That's not Daniel. He wasn't just ticking off the days, kind of waiting until the exile would end. That was a lot of days. They ended up being there for 70 years. He wasn't just in survival mode. That's not Daniel's mode. Often, I know for me and for many others, we can just get our heads down in survival mode. How do I just gut this out where I find myself, Daniel sets a different bar. He's not just in survival mode. He's trying to figure out how to integrate his faith into his work, how his Sunday affects his Monday, and he's just not going to survive this. He's going to thrive in it. And I think it's Daniel who's a great example of Colossians 3, which has been a bit of a banner verse over this series, right? Daniel's living Colossians 3 before Colossians 3 was ever written. This is Daniel. I think he had this hallmark verse before it was ever even penned. Whatever you do, Paul says, Colossians three twenty-three and 4, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar. It's not about Darius. It's not about those guys. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Do you see that? There's this picture that Daniel gets that in the midst of an environment that he would prefer not to be in, no doubt if he mapped out his career path, he would have picked a different path. But he didn't get to choose that. Sometimes those things are thrust upon us. Some of you are in settings, in work circumstances that you never sat down and kind of mapped out, that's where I'd like to be. You just ended up there through a whole sequence of events and you find yourself, perhaps in a setting, around some leadership, in a culture, in some coworker dynamics, and you just go, what do I do here? How do I thrive here? Daniel sets before us, he just, he went Colossians 3 on the story no matter where he was. I think he approached his three years of training in the school of Babylon very similarly. He gave it his best. The king noticed how well he did. But he came out of that training not with Yahweh squeezed out and Babylon squeezed in. He came out of that training with Yahweh even greater and stronger in his life, that his soul was being enlarged and growing and strengthening in the midst of an environment that it didn't seem like was possible. And then just go on for years, this would go on for decades. So I think Daniel sets the bar for a work Ethic dynamic in a work environment that is less than optimal for spiritual development. That's Daniel. He sets the bar for it. I came across this week an author named Philip Zimbardo. He's a Stanford prof, he's chair of the Western Psychological Foundation, and he wrote a book called The Demise of Guys. All right, guys, the demise of, that was the title of his book, Not Super Encouraging, right? Here's what one part of the book, he talks about this. He said, by the time a young man turns 20, they will have spent an average of 10,000 hours playing video games. And he makes the comment, that's half the time it takes to earn a bachelor's degree. Parents, I just gave you a ton of fuel right there. Some of you who are parenting some teenagers are saying, you've got some young people under your roof who have far more than a bachelor's degree is what they've earned in the video game area. Now listen, students, I'm not knocking video games. All I'm asking for is just to kind of step back and to think about, if you just put a portion of the time and energy and investment that you place in video games, like I've seen some of you students, what you do with those controllers it's breathtaking. Like, how do you do that? And then you quote all these unbelievable statistics about all these games and all these players in all these different parts of the country, and you know who's ranked where. You know so much about these. It's unbelievable. And here's my point in that. Daniel would say, Hey, we had to deploy some of that same level of intentionality and effort and focus around the things of our own personal development. Like young people, you're at a stage in your life where paying attention to your character development and your academic development and your work ethic development, these things are really important. You can't just stay in the basement playing Xbox for 10,000 hours of your development. It doesn't work that way. And we've got a crisis going on in our land because we've got young people growing up where they're formed in the language and literature of the Babylonians this way. It's forming and shaping the kind of young men and young women they are becoming. And listen, it's not just video games, right? It could be Instagram, it could be TikTok, it could be any number of screen times, and there's a role and a place for all the, I'm not knocking you, say no to all those things, I'm just asking for you to evaluate the amount of effort you're placing in those things compared to what I think is a deeper level of investment, especially in the younger formative years that you find yourself in. And so students, Colossians three twenty-three and 4, there's your bar for how you approach your schoolwork. That's the bar. You work at it with all your heart. It's not about that teacher. It's not about that administrator. And I know that I sat, I was a student once too. I sat in so many classes that were a spectacular waste of time. That's a part of the education process. Sorry, teachers, it's true. It's just part of it. But that doesn't mean it's an excuse not to give your best, students. And listen, I'm gonna press this one step further. Students, when your parents are checking up on your grades and asking about your assignments and if you're keeping up on your assignments, students, it's not that we're being overly controlling, it's called being a parent. No love. Come on, students. It's called being a parent. It's out of love for you, care for you, and concern for you because we want to see you grow up as young people carrying out Daniel-like qualities in a world that we see as increasingly Babylonian in its ways set against the faith. That's not going to happen locked in the basement staring at screens. And that's what mom and dad, lovingly, hopefully mom and dad, gently, hopefully mom and dad, but intentionally and purposefully are calling you to. We're calling you to rise up and to be a generation of Daniels. We need them and believe it's in you. And we're not going to allow you to settle for less than God's best of calling and purpose on your life. And I think, Daniel, I commend to our young people today. I can't think of a biblical character that's better set for this generation than a young man like Daniel, who in his teen years and early 20s was dropped right in there and look. Look at where the story went. Unless we adults think it's all just application for the younger generation, right? How different would our HR departments look if we had Daniels putting their hands to the plow in the office? You HR leaders, how different would it be? I think it would be quite a bit different if the commentary of the followers of Jesus in the marketplace had anything that reflected what it said of Daniel 6, verse 4, trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. I think that would change some environments. I think that would change some team dynamics. I think it would set quite an example and be a radiant light. I like what Gordon McDonald said. I put this quote in your notes. One of the saddest experiences is to awaken at old age and discover that one has been using only a small part of self. That's why we're setting before you and casting vision before you of a theology of work and a theology of calling and a God who is big enough to integrate your faith and your work, whatever field of work, all equally called. This isn't just about those who go into vocational ministry. It is about those and it's about everyone else in the arts and in engineering and in business and in the trades, all of the above, that it is possible to flourish in your faith in that setting even today. But lest we think it's gonna be easy, the chapter keeps going, and Daniel's co workers, as they're trying to undermine him, right? Did you notice the only way they thought they could get to him is hey, we gotta go at his, his God. If you wanna understand Daniel, you gotta understand Yahweh. If we can get at Yahweh, we can get at Daniel. That tells you a lot about his character. Wouldn't that be a great commentary? For those who are trying to get at you, if they knew your walk with God was so genuine and consistent and authentic, they're like, the only way we can get to that man or that woman is through his God. That's Daniel. So they go to the king, and they say, because the king issues a decree that says, hey, you know what, King Darius? Because this is, again, the spiritual climate of that day. Self is king. It's all about self. Nebuchadnezzar built a 90-foot statue and said, bow or burn to that statue. And here Darius says, No. I want you, verse 10, they set up this, convince him to pass a labor law that if you don't bow down and worship Darius, you're tossed into the lion's den. Verse 10, now when Daniel learned the decree had been published, so he learns about the new labor law, bow to Darius, or go to the lion's den. Here's what he does. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows open towards Jerusalem. Why would that be? Because he's 700 miles away from his homeland. The windows open to Jerusalem, takes him back. It's like his prayer room. He opens up and has a remembrance of his prayer room. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, underline this, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So the first window we get into how do we thrive and not just survive in Babylon these days is that we go about our work with a kind of a Colossians three twenty three and 4, a Daniel 6 Trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent And then verse 10, second window in is There's this power of habit Just as he had done before Charles Duhigg wrote this very popular book A New York Times bestseller Power of Habit about a decade ago He talked about how habits are formed Here's what Duhigg said in that book This process within our brains Is a three-step loop First there's a cue A trigger that tells your brain To go into automatic mode Which habit to use Then there's the routine, which can be physical or mental or emotional. Finally, there's a reward, which helps your brain figure out if this particular loop is worth remembering for the future. He calls it the habit loop. So you follow it? Cue, routine, reward. For Daniel, what's the cue for Daniel? Darius puts a decree in writing. The decree is bow and worship King Darius or go to the lion's den. That's the cue. The routine is what? What do we see of Daniel's routine? He goes home, upstairs room, open the windows, bows on his knees, gets on his face before God. And then the reward is what? The reward is he has companionship with God in these circumstances. He has peace in the middle of this chaos. He has faith that God can make a way in the midst of all this uncertainty. It doesn't mean all the circumstances change. It doesn't mean he's going to be exempt, as we'll see in a moment, from the lion's den. It just means he's going to have someone with him in the lion's den. So you see, cue, routine, reward. This has been built in Daniel's life. If you go back, if you know the book of Daniel, chapter 2, same thing happened in Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream. He wants someone to interpret his dream. He asked all the astrologers and magicians and enchanters to come and interpret his dream. And they were Ophir. No one could interpret his dream. And if you're Nebuchadnezzar and the people in your court don't do what you ask them to do, usually this is what you do. He said, well, kill them all then. He said, well, kill them all. Daniel steps forward and says, King, give me the night. I'll come back in the morning. And hopefully I'll be able to interpret your dream. That's Daniel who stepped forward. He's trying to save everyone's life. And when Daniel... Goes, he immediately then goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He goes to his sacred companions. And what does he do? He calls out. says, we're going to pray. We're going to pray all night long. We've got to pray that God would give us some insight into this dream. And then the next morning, here's what we see. Daniel 2, verse 26. The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Listen to Daniel's reply here. Look at the character in this man. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has, known, he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. And he goes on to interpret it. So what's the cue there in Daniel 2? The cue is Nebuchadnezzar demands an interpretation of his dream. The routine? Fall on your face before God and prayer. And the reward? you're not executed. Well, that's helpful, right? You live, and not just you, a whole bunch of others live. And the other part of the reward is King Nebuchadnezzar promotes him up and gives him leadership over all the diviners, enchanters, magicians, astrologers. Can you imagine that staff meeting that Daniel had? That had to be quite a staff meeting. Every, right, every Tuesday, let's get that group together, and Daniel's in charge of that group. Wow, I bet the dress code was something in there, so… But here's what I suspect, church. I suspect what we see here in Daniel, the cultivation of a habit of praying, the habit loop of praying and seeking God and trusting God, I suspect in Daniel that was cultivated and developed long before he arrived in Babylon. I, I don't think what we see displayed in Babylon is just what happened and developed him. It happened and was developed before. We, don't, we virtually know nothing about Daniel's upbringing, other than I don't think it takes too much to speculate. He had to have some pretty amazing parents who raised him and grounded him to trust God, to pray. He had to be a praying family, it had to be a seeking God no matter the circumstance type family. That Daniel was raised up through his teen years and maybe into his early 20s, and, and that there was this, there's like, what we see in the book of Daniel is a spiritual formation on display in his life. The Daniel we see is a Daniel that's been formed and developed through a whole sequence of building in and teaching and training and developing. It's like Dallas Willard says, we're all undergoing a spiritual formation. The question isn't whether that's occurring, the question is what kind and in what direction? That's the question. We're all being formed and clearly in Daniel 6, We're seeing a a formation, and even in Daniel 2, in his younger years, like, this is a young man whose soul has been shaped, whose, whose prayerful posture has been developed, whose muscle of trusting God is in place, even in the midst of really challenging circumstances. Church, this is why we, this is why as a congregation, why are we having things like a theology of the body, and why are we talking about marriage and parenting and those things? This is why. Why is Brad with the student ministry, why is he having conversations talking about gender and sexuality and what God has to say in those topics? Why? Why is that developing? Why do we host these kind of spiritual development opportunities over and over when we get together on Sunday? Why are we going to open God's Word and let God's Word set the agenda? All of it is this whole mission and directive that the local church set in an increasingly Babylonian era, here's our work. We've got to develop counter-formation habit loops. That's what we have to do. We've got to develop in the ways of Jesus, habit loops in the ways of Jesus, to counter the language and literature of the Babylonians. Because the air we're increasingly breathing, and the messages that are increasingly being sent, and the immersion of our lives is more and more what we see in the book of Daniel, 700 miles away from God's original heart and principles. And so that's why why we're always talking about the things we're talking about around here, that's why Kim and Natalie and the children's team do such a great job. Do you realize the kids go from Genesis to Revelation every three years? Why? It's counterformation. That's why. Why are we always talking about making sure you've got sacred companions in your life? Get involved in a small group. Get involved in a class. Get connected to someone. A sacred companion is someone who helps you seek God. We need relationships. We can't do this alone. Daniel had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was a little sacred companion group. We need each other. There's no way we're going to be able to thrive and flourish in Babylon going it alone. And that's one of the mission and visions of the local church. This is why we're doing what we're doing. And so the habit loops that have been formed in Daniel, I think, give us a great picture of the habit loops for us today, that what would be said of him would be said of us Verse 16, let's see what happens now. Because they're not done with him yet, you know. He's not really following the decree. He doesn't go bow to Darius. He goes and bows to Yahweh. And then the the co-workers report. They kind of rat him out. They go and say, hey, Darius, here's the deal. Daniel's not bowing to you. He's bowing to his God like we've known him to do over and over again. And so the king, they hold the king's feet to the fire. And the king issues the decree to send Daniel into the lion's den. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. So that tells you a little bit of the worldview, right? The whole purpose of the Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire is to shift the worldview of these Hebrews and these Israelites, shift them from Yahweh-centered to Babylonian-centered or to Persian-centered. That's the whole idea. And not unlike what today is, there's a whole lot of things stacked up to try to shift our worldview from a Christ-centered position to more of a self-centered place or a world-centered place, like what's going on here. Darius refers to him as your God. But notice he says, underline whom you serve continually. May he rescue you. And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. So this is the third phrase. I guess it's kind of a window into thriving and not just surviving in Babylon. It's this whom you serve continually. And to give some weight to this, I think we need to understand time frame here. Because Daniel, when he gets uprooted and sent into exile in 586, again, I'm thinking he's late teens, early 20s from scholars' estimates. Well, the Persians take over the kingdom of Babylon in 522. So that's about 60-ish years, which puts Daniel in his early 80s. In Daniel chapter 6. Now, I know a lot of artists' renderings show Daniel as this young strapping man getting tossed into the lion's den. That's most likely not what happened. It's an elderly man in his 80s who's lived decades of his life, 700 miles away from his homeland, immersed in a really difficult and dark spiritual environment, found himself thrust from fiery furnace into lion's den, ostracized, isolated, alone, I mean, ridiculed. This guy, decades, do you picture that? Decades worth. He's flourishing, he's trusting, he's praying, he's worshiping, not just in his 20s, that's chapter 2, in his 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, all the way into his 80s. This is Daniel, whom you serve continually, not for days, but for decades. This past week, I had a young pastor in the area reach out, and he said he wanted to spend some time with an older pastor who had a lot of experience, and I thought, I think this is a compliment. I'm going to receive it as such, you know, and we just had a great conversation. He's 25. He's fairly new in the ministry. He's been at it a few years, but he just sat in my office for about an hour, and he just had his notebook out and his pen out, and he just wanted to ask questions because his observation being younger in the ministry is he's struggling to find examples of longevity of faithfulness who just kind of stay in one place and come through it reasonably healthy. And he's like, so we wanted to talk about that. He's a great young man, crazy gifted, great, loves the church, loves people. He's gonna have an amazing ministry. But uh, near the end of the conversation, I just encouraged him. I just said something like, I said, what if we were to think about this? If the studies are right, they say that we hit our maximum spiritual effectiveness and fruitfulness and productivity in our 60s. That's what it's saying, like the best decade for spiritual leadership and fruitfulness is your 60s. Second best decade is your 70s. So I said to this young man, I said, what would it look like for you to evaluate your rhythms, your practices, and your habits with a long arc of ministry before you, that sitting here now at the age of 25, what if you were to approach it and say, "I'm 35 years from my peak"? How might that change the way you? Because sometimes we approach our 20s like we're never going to make it to 30, and then you approach your 30s like there's no way you're going to get to 40, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But what would it be if we just step back and we just, and I think this was Daniel. I think Daniel had some amazing people built into his life, and he had this long arc of his life that what we see on display in Daniel 6 is a large souled man that's the f- of decades worth of spiritual development, not days, not years, decades, where he just kept rising upstairs, room, open the windows on his knees, open his Bible. Bow before the Lord, cry out in prayer, and trust God for decades. Even in middle management and the Freedom from Religion Foundation, even if he's a direct report to Ronald Reagan Jr. and all the others, even if everyone's coming after him, even if his friends get tossed in the fiery furnace, even if he finds himself in the lion's den, God, whom you serve continually, there's the window. It's this long arc. It's this steady faithfulness. And then let's see what happens, verse 18. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and any entertainment being brought to him. He could not sleep. Huh. You can't sleep if you know in your heart of hearts this man you just tossed in there, he really doesn't deserve to be in there. It's a bit like Pilate and Pilate's wife with Jesus, right? If you know that story in the New Testament when Pilate's wife's like, I didn't sleep well, I had a dream about this scene. You need to wash your hands of this man, right? Because they're just something unsettled unsettled in Darius's heart. He couldn't wait to get up the next morning, run to the mouth of that cave. Verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up, hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, O king. Verse 23, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. When Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had underlined trusted in his God. So church, it's one thing to trust in your God in the middle of the synagogue in Jerusalem. It's a whole other thing to trust in your God for decades in the middle of Babylon. And that's what you see in Daniel. He he just served God continually. He just trusted God continually in an environment that was as anti-Yahweh as they came. Worship team, why don't you come on back up? I want to close with one final story with this. Here's a picture of a coach in the NFL named Rod Marinelli. Some of you may have known this name. He's been in the league for 26 years. He was most recently the defensive line coach with uh, the Las Vegas Raiders. And Rod Marinelli, uh, he likes to tell the story of when he was in Vietnam. He was a soldier in Vietnam. And there was a time where he was on the, more of the frontline area. And he said the routine was that if they helicoptered a priest into your unit, like into your camp, the night before you're about to be deployed to the whatever battle, he said that's their way of saying a bunch of you are going to die. And so he said he remembers this particular day they helicoptered this priest in and they held a mass and the priest is leading a mass with all the soldiers and he was talking and teaching in his homily about trusting God and about allowing God to be your fortress and your refuge and peace in God and kind of make peace with your God and all those things. And right in the middle of the homily, Rod Marinelli says their whole camp gets, comes under sharp sniper fire, like the guns just start flying, the bullets start flying. And the, he said the priest in the middle of the homily basically had a massive panic attack. He just unraveled. Like they had to basically helicopter the priest out of the mass and get him to safety. And Marinelli's point was, it's one thing to talk about trusting God in the middle of a church, in the middle of a mass. It's a whole other thing to say you're going to trust God when the sniper bullets start flying. And church, all the environments from students to adults that you find yourselves in, I don't see the general trajectory of our land growing kind of more increasingly Yahweh-centered in the near future, apart from revival and spiritual awakening to come in a measure that we haven't seen since the Second Great Awakening, which we'll pray and fast and ask God for, apart from that kind of wide-sweeping outpouring of the Spirit, I think what we're finding ourselves in, and you will find yourselves deployed into, is the integration of your faith in your work in spiritual Babylon. In a place that I'd like you to think, Daniel, not just surviving, not just gutting it out, not just ticking off the days, but thriving. Say, how does that happen? I think there are four windows in from this morning. That no matter the setting, you commit to give it all you've got. Because you're not working for Nebuchadnezzar or Darius. You're working for the Lord. You're going to give it your best. You're not going to cut corners. You're going to be trustworthy, not corrupt nor negligent. And that you cultivate some habit loops that are very Jesus-centered. We've got to cultivate some counter-formation. And then you've got to prioritize the kind of cue and routine and reward that are set like Daniel was. So when someone issues a decree, you find yourself responding Long before you got to Babylon, hopefully you've cultivated a posture and a muscle to trust God and to pray and to worship and to look to Him. And then it might be said of you and it's said of me that it's just not for days or years, but it's a decade. the large arc of the minute continually. I'm sure Daniel didn't know how long he was going to be there. Pretty much his whole adult working life was 700 miles away from where his career path wanted to be. That's Daniel. And then the commentary at the end of his life, wouldn't that be a wonderful commentary for you and me and the legacy we leave in our work? That even the Dariuses and the Nebuchadnezzars and all the coworkers who not may be aligned with your faith values might they say of you and me what they said of Daniel, He trusted in his God." That's thriving. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for a young man like Daniel, thank you for a story you've preserved. Thank you for lessons that are so applicable. Help us as a people as we move into our Mondays to think about how our worship here on Sunday. That you would speak to us and lead us, that you would be our strength, that you'd give us uh, wisdom, eyes to see, that you would develop a large soul in each of us, and that you would help us lead and honor and respect even those around us who are a long ways away from maybe the value system's that your word talks about. So raise up an army of Daniels, I pray, in this generation, in this day, through our schools and our marketplace and deploy them for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.